All right, good morning. Well, church family, whoa, that's hot. Yikes. Rather than our, uh, our usual introduction, uh, I want to begin by reading the block of text uh, that the message for last week and the message for this week and the message for next week are all coming out of. Okay, so if you would, please just, you can follow along with your eyes or you can read with me if you want. Um, we're going to start with Acts chapter 14. We're going to read verses 23 through, I think, is it 26 that we're stopping at or 28 today? It's, it's one of those. That's all right. Just follow along. All right. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Would you bow with me, please? Father God, we just ask in Jesus' name once again that you will make us good soil. I pray that as the word is planted, that we receive it humbly and that it takes root, bears fruit, and that that fruit is, uh, is tasty for others, Father, that we will be able to, to show the goodness of Christ to those that we come into contact with. Father, help us not to be diseased trees, but to, uh, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and with righteousness. And we thank you, God, for your son. And as we study uh, what your word says today, please uh, bless it as we try to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed uh, this week's PowerPoint background is the same as last week's PowerPoint background. And uh, guess what? It'll be the same next week. And here's a reason for that. Um, the stated goal for us as we look at these verses is to, to take notice of some things that are obviously very important in the life of the early church and then transfer those concepts to our own context so that we can apply them um, in our church life today. So if, if the phrase church life, if that sounds a little weird or maybe a little vague, then let's clarify it. Uh, we're not just talking about what happens when the doors to the building are open. Okay, we're not just talking about on church services and, and you know, the, the, the additional uh, missions that we do and things like that. It, it's more than that. We're referring to the actual day-to-day -day process of the church body as an organism as we are going through the process of being made holy by the Spirit of God. Okay, that, that's what this is about. Um, it's about being made more and more into the image of Christ, uh, and his DNA permeates his entire body, and so we're supposed to be more and more like Jesus. Uh, so this passage that we read, as short as it is, it contains a lot of important stuff that relates to the life of the body of Christ as we grow in him. Uh, as the, the Westminster Confession states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, I think most of us have probably heard that before, I think that's a pretty great summation uh, for our purpose in being. But there's also, there's a very specific way that we as the body of Christ, that we are supposed to do this, okay? As we're supposed to, to glorify him while we're present in this life. And it, it is expressed beautifully by Jesus near the end of Matthew 28. He presents a mission to his followers. And while that mission certainly has a few details attached to it, the command itself can be summed up in two words. Anybody know what they are? Who said that? Yes, thank you, Brent. Make disciples. That's the mission 
that Jesus gave his followers. Not make converts. That's the Holy Spirit's job, which, which he does when we're faithful to, to share the good news about who Jesus is and what God did through him. That's the gospel. His mission for us is to make disciples. And the passage at the end of Acts 14 contains several things that are important to the process of making disciples. Okay, As, as we looked at it last week, we saw that having elders is important to, to developing effective Christ followers because believers, they need to be taught God's word. We need to, to, to learn the word of God. We need to be corrected sometimes. Believers need to see godly examples. And, and so elders are important, but the rest of verse 23, to me, points to the importance of both action and trust in the process of disciple-making. And again, the second half of that sentence says, with prayer and fasting, they, the apostles, committed them, the believers, to the Lord in whom they had believed. And in this this short little section of God-breathed Scripture, we're able to see both sides of the coin, so to speak, regarding our responsibility in the process of making disciples. Friends, first of all, we need to act. We need to act. We need to do something. Okay, There's a sense in which we must do something in order for disciples to be made. And these next sub-points are going to kind of help us to understand what that ought to look like in practice. Okay, Remember, Paul and Barnabas, they've been doing what they can in order to, to strengthen the new churches that they just planted, right? And these, these are churches they themselves had planted. And so it's with that context in mind that we consider what they did. I think it's fair to say most of us in this room are probably not called to church planting in the same sense that Paul and Barnabas was. Maybe some of us are, okay? But I do believe that we ought to consider ourselves subject to that mission of making disciples. To do that, we need to initiate obedience to Jesus' instructions. Now, that's that's if we haven't already. Perhaps some of us have. But, you know, I, I want to take a poll, and I want you to be honest with yourselves. So, first, I'm going to ask, please, everybody close your eyes. Let this be a blind poll, because I know some people don't want to, you know, you don't want to feel embarrassed about whatever. So, this is the question. How many of you in this room right now are actively trying to disciple someone else for Jesus Christ? Raise a finger. Okay. You can put your hands down. Um, please keep your eyes closed. If you're a Christian and you're a parent, I certainly hope that you're trying to disciple your children. They are your first church. And if your spouse is a believer, then hopefully you're trying to help them grow in their relationship to Christ. If they're not a believer, hopefully you've not given up on them. You can open your eyes. Please understand, guys, that the the process of making disciples doesn't start only after they're born again. I mean, after all, disciple means student. You know, it, it blew my mind the first time I, that I read this, and I hadn't really thought about it. Many of Jesus' followers were called disciples before they even knew who he was. I mean, think about that. As far as you know, every relationship that you currently have with another person has the potential to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. No pressure. <laughs> That's a pretty great thing to consider. Everyone within your sphere of influence is a potential disciple. 
I think when we recognize that, it, it has a tendency to change the way that we think and talk and act around other people. At least it should. You know, sadly, we often forget, though, that we are, we are modeling the Christian life for somebody. You know, Paul addressed that in, in several places in the New Testament, but maybe the clearest is found in Ephesians 5. He says, look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. I think in the, the ESV, it says, making the best use of time. That's one of those places I like that. King James, actually, he says, redeeming the time. For the Christian layman, what better way is there to redeem the time than to obey the Lord by discipling somebody? Looking again at the text, Luke's, he writes that the action taken by Paul and Barnabas was done in a certain way. Did you notice that? What accompanied their actions? A couple of things. Like, I don't know, it's not on the screen. Shove your Bibles open, people. <laughs> Two things, prayer and what? Prayer and fasting. Thank you. I think we tend to gloss over stuff like that in Scripture when it pops up. We just kind of go, oh, yeah, it's prayer and fasting. We just go on. So, so I want us to try not to miss it, okay? The apostles believed that making disciples was such a priority. They took it very seriously, and so should we. We should take making disciples seriously. I don't know how many of us have a, a, a usual, like a typical regimen of prayer, but I hope that all of us go through the church prayer list sometime during the week. You know, I, I know uh, we, we elders do it on Sunday morning, but I hope we're also doing it at another time during the week. I hope that prayer is something you do together as a family. If you're not, I hope you start. Even those of you who have kids have, have moved up and, and left the home, pray with your spouse. If your kids are still at home, pray with your kids. It's also something you should do individually, at least daily. Prayer is an important spiritual discipline, as is fasting. Now, in America, Christians rarely fast. In fact, we, we very rarely practice delayed gratification in anything, right? Right? It's true. It's true. Fasting is a great spiritual exercise for a lot of different reasons, but ideally, if we pray during those times that we'd normally be eating, it's, it's good for us to deny ourselves, you know? Even, even with all the health benefits aside, it's good to deny ourselves because it reminds us of several things. First of all, that we are called to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, Okay? Secondly, it reminds us that we rule our bodies. Our appetites shouldn't rule us. And thirdly, that we're blessed. For there are many people in the world that simply don't have enough to eat. They're hungry on a regular basis. And fourth, we are not to live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And on top of this, it's a great way of showing humility before God and, and sacrificing something when praying. I, I think it shows that, that we're serious about, you know, our request. It shows that we really mean this. I want to encourage you to, to consider fasting a few times a year um, from supper to supper. It's less than 24 hours. I know not everybody can do it. Some people are diabetic or have hypoglycemia or whatever. But if you can do it, just go from supper to supper a few times a year. It's not that hard. Um, drink a lot of water, you know, have your juice or coffee in the morning if it keeps from getting a headache, but 
deny yourself for a period of time and maybe pray for a situation or for a specific person whenever you feel hunger pangs. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder. Maybe pray for a circumstance in the church body. Pray, pray for someone in your family. Maybe pray for persecuted Christians. Fasting and prayer go together really well. That's why we see them a lot in Scripture together. And they're especially beneficial whenever you're in a position uh, to make a very important decision about the future. Or if you're maybe about to embark on some new spiritual endeavor. That's kind of what's happening here with Paul and Barnabas. Um, except they're fasting and praying over new churches that they've planted. So anyway, to follow the apostles' example, let's be obedient to join in the mission of making disciples. Let's take it seriously, and let's invest in others faithfully. Now, what does that look like? If we observe how Paul and Barnabas lived, it becomes really apparent just how much of themselves they poured into these other believers. And while it's going to look different for different people, uh, it's clear that these these two men sacrificed much of their time and, and their energy and some skin, you know, for the sake of the mission. And we'll, we'll get a fuller picture of this as we keep reading through the book of Acts, so, so we're not going to go too deeply into it here, but, but friends, the application should be clear. Who in this room has a bank account? Yeah, most of us probably do. Okay. What happens, church, if we write a check for more money than we've got in the account? Government bailout? What? I'm just kidding. What happens? It bounces. It gets overdrawn, right? An old pastor I used to work with, um, he, he told me a lot of things that didn't stick, but he told me one thing that did stick, and that was, he said, you can't make a withdrawal without making a deposit first. And that concept is not unique to finances, okay? In certain relationships, in matters of trust, you have to invest in order to see a payoff. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not... I'm not referring to people as commodities, but as, as fellow shareholders in the kingdom of God. Because see, when we spiritually invest in another person, we may not be the main beneficiaries of that investment. And that's okay, right? But they will. They'll benefit from that, in, from that investment. Ideally, so will other people through them. Because again, the point of making disciples is to make disciples that make disciples, right? And so on. But obviously, there's, a, there's another important facet to all this, and that is if we try to do these things in our own, our own strength, we will fail. So instead, like the apostles, we need to trust in the sovereign God of the universe to bless our efforts because, hey, it's really him working anyway, right? According to Philippians 2, it's him working in us both to will and to work according to his good purpose. But our part then is to First act, and then to trust, to believe in the Lord's faithfulness to fulfill his perfect will. I mean, we see in Scripture in lots of different places that no one can thwart God's will. So if God is purposing to do something in someone, it's up to him to make sure it happens. It's not up to us. And this is important. I want to explain why, okay? On many different levels, Christians need to know this. We have to trust in the Lord to, to provide for our needs, right? To protect us and to guide us and all that. However, there's a sense in which we also need to trust that, that God, this is less directly related to us, we need to trust that God will also provide for and protect and guide other people too. I want you to think about that. 
How are we at trusting God with other people? How many of us have managed to perfectly balance our relationship with the world around us? Anybody? No? Yeah, me either. You know, some people try not to have any responsibility at all toward anyone else, but that is not, that's not realistic for Christians. That's not what we're called to do, okay? God wants us to, have, uh, to care for one another, have a measure of accountability with each other, and to look out for one another. I, I did a sermon a while back, which uh, I think I was mirroring it off of something else I'd read way before that, because that's how it works. But it was a sermon about all the one another's in the Bible. There's so many one another's. We really have a a lot of accountability and a lot of care that's supposed to go into our relationship with other Christians. Generally, I think mature believers see that. You know, I think that that believers, if they've, well, you know what, I'm going to back up. I was going to say if they've been believers a long time. That doesn't necessarily mean they're mature. Amen? Amen? Okay, so believers that are mature, they understand this, and, and, but sometimes we have the opposite issue. And that we try to hold on to people too tightly that we care about. We try to grab people, especially when they're under our our umbrella of protection, so to speak. For married people, it's our our spouses. Um, For parents, maybe it's our children. Uh, For pastors, it's congregations. We must realize we are not the ultimate shield against all the evils in the world. Who is? God is. We have to be willing to relinquish our control over others because, frankly, guys, it's an illusion anyway. We don't have control of others. None of us are sovereign. I mean, not one person in this room has even complete control over him or herself, let alone somebody else. You can argue, well, we can force our kids to do something. Well, yeah, but you're forcing their body. You're not forcing their heart. We don't have ultimate control. Certainly not over circumstances, but God does. It's a very strange thing to realize that your kids are growing up. Some of them are already grown up. And when that happens, you know, you you can lead them, you can feed them, which is expensive, you can... You can discipline them. You can apply necessary bandages, hopefully not from the discipline. Um, but, but they have their own lives. They have their own heart, their own mind. They're beginning to make their own decisions. And you're not going to be there every moment of every day to, to watch over them and make sure that they're not making bad choices. The apostles couldn't be in two places at once. And neither can you. <laughs> You know, they couldn't, they couldn't plant a church in one town without leaving another town. And, and like Paul and Barnabas, we have to commend people and commend situations to the God in whom we believe, don't we? We got to trust Him. We got to turn things over. After all, he, he is literally infinitely more capable of taking care of them. And He knows better than we do because He's completely wise. Nothing's hidden from Him. And he's good. We think we know what's best. God truly knows what's best. And all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we don't have to cling to others so tightly. Instead, we can teach them to cling to God 
who is a far better anchor to hold on to anyway, right? By the way, uh, something else we need to do is allow the Lord to bring growth. And I, I put allow here. I'm, I'm putting quotation marks around it because it's really an idiom. We, we don't have the ability to prevent God from doing what he has purposed. But it is very important that we understand his sovereignty and we recognize that he is the one who produces growth. He is the one who brings forth the fruit that we bear. This realization is really helpful, at least to me, because it, it, it keeps us from, from putting too much emphasis on our own ability when it comes to another person's sanctification. You know? Now, does that make sense to you? No? Get some nods. Get one. Okay, so here, here's the thing. If a person is growing in the Spirit, it's because of the Spirit, okay? Knowing this keeps us from getting a big head when we see someone bearing fruit because it's by the grace of God. You know, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul commented on this. I think it was 1 Corinthians 3. He says, he planted seeds, referring to the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the word among believers. But then he says that Apollos watered it. That's a guy we're going to learn about later in Acts. Um, meaning after Paul preached the word, Apollos came along behind him and he, and he tended those that were, you know, that were good soil, that were starting to produce fruit. And then, but Paul says, but God gave the growth, right? He says, I planted seeds, Apollos watered, but it is God who brings the growth. It's the Lord's prerogative to produce the fruit. And I think that's really good news for us because it keeps us humble. But, and it doesn't just keep us humble. It also relieves some of the pressure because we know that, that God has the capability to make up for our inability, right? I think if, if we tried, if we have tried to be faithful to do what God has called us to do, we can trust him with the results rather than you know, putting some kind of burden on ourselves to make it happen to seal the deal. God makes converts, we make disciples. That said, we are still, we're still responsible to do our part, and that brings us to our next point, the importance of watering. If you're at a garden, uh, you probably know you're not just going to typically just poke some seeds into the ground and then come back two or three months later and you'll get to chow down, Right? That's not normally how that works. Uh, it's true that, that this can happen, but most climates are not conducive to this approach. And most of the time, you're going to have to water those seeds. We're not even going to get into all the weeding and the, you know, getting rid of the, the dogs eating your cantaloupe and everything else. <laughs> We're not talking about that. We're just talking about just watering, okay? You've got to water seeds. In verse 24, Luke writes, Then they pass through uh, lots of places. <laughs> Pisidia, Pamphylia, uh, Perga, Italia. There they sailed to Antioch. I'm not, I'm not wanting to spend a lot of time on geography today. I just want you to understand. If you want to flip back to the map, the map section of your Bible, almost every study Bible has got a map section. Um, you, you might look and see if it's got a map of Paul's missionary journeys. You can also you know, Google it or DuckDuckGo it if you have a phone. But basically what we're seeing here is Paul and Barnabas, they were going back through all these cities on the mainland where they'd planted churches. If you see that it's a, they go through an island on the way out, and then they go through all these on the kind of the southernmost edge of what would be modern day Turkey. They go through all these places, they plant all these churches, and then they go back through those same spots. They don't go back through the island, they go directly from um, 
I can't think of whichever one, the, the, the last one here, um, but they, they take a ship and they cruise back across the sea. But they're going back through these church plants. And I, I just, I think that's interesting. They were watering the seeds that they had planted. And most of the time, I think we can probably truthfully say, growth doesn't happen without watering. That's true both for the farm and for the mission field. You know, when, While God, God gives the growth, it doesn't mean that we neglect our responsibility to water the seeds that have been planted. So you say, well, okay, well, what does that look like? In real time, this is what it looks like. Based on how Paul and Barnabas revisited these baby churches, I think it starts with caring enough to follow up with people. People who've begun the gospel journey. You know, sometimes in, in restoration movement churches, which we are, I feel like we put such an emphasis on the first steps of the Christian walk, we forget that there's a whole journey ahead. And yes, people need to confess Christ and be immersed, but that's only the beginning of being made a disciple. You know, we don't dunk them and junk them. We're we're supposed to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And that mentoring relationship, that ought to take place within the, the loving framework of Christian family. I'm not talking about biologically, but spiritually inside a, a local church. You know, it's not the preacher's job or, or the elder's job or the Sunday school teacher's job to express what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. Let me rephrase that. It is our job, but it's yours too. It's everybody's job to express what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. And watering those seeds, that means making a conscious effort to keep your brothers and sisters from falling through the cracks. Paul and Barnabas, they did this well. Um, they followed up their new congregations. And, and, and while we're not, we're not given a lot of detail in this particular passage, we get a fuller picture from earlier in the book of Acts that they would, they would prioritize those who responded well to the message that they brought. You know, when they went to a person or, or a place that was hostile to the word, there was that one time where, you know, Paul struck a guy blind, or at least God did, through Paul. But a lot of times, they didn't seem to really waste much time trying to argue with them. What did they do instead? They, yeah, they went to somebody who would listen. They didn't waste a lot of time arguing. They preached the gospel to somebody who would listen. And I, I think too often we tend to neglect our main spheres of influence to try to, uh, to, to water or, or to plant seeds that, that really should be much further down on our priority list. Here's what I mean. Um, y'all, this is something I've had a really hard time learning. God has been sinking this in. My wife's been trying to tell me this for years regarding arguing with people on Facebook and things like that. It's not wrong to witness to people on social media. That is a good thing, but it's certainly not typically beneficial to argue. And it's certainly possible to disciple a person that you don't know well if they're open to learning. But listen, if you're getting a lot of pushback from someone, if, if they're resisting your efforts, maybe you should consider whether you're spending your time wisely when there are other people in your life who are more open to listening. And this is something I think we need, we need to consider. that we, we need discernment about. We need to be praying for discernment about this as Christians. What does James 1.5 say? 
If anybody asks for wisdom, he'll receive it without finding fault. So pray for discernment when it comes to who to talk to and, and when to move on sometimes. It doesn't mean you can't come back later, you know. If it, if it shows that, if, if you can see signs that God has softened them up, one of the things you remember, some of these, these cities that it listed are places where Paul and Barnabas either got thrown out of or they dusted off their feet and, and left, right? Well, they came back through. They came back through to talk to the people who would listen. Anyway, um, it, it just it goes back to remember, you know, what we said earlier about trusting God with someone. You know, you can scatter seeds, you can water seeds, but don't get embroiled if you've got other things going on. You have kids at home and a spouse and friends at work and people that need to hear the gospel that are open to hearing it from you because you have a relationship with them. You've got to make a deposit before you can make a withdrawal. All right. Getting off the soapbox there. Um, you're, listen, you're not giving up on them. This is, I just want to make this clear. You're not giving up on them. You're giving them up to God. I'm going to say it again. You're not giving up on them. You're giving them up to God. He is more capable than you are. He is more capable than anyone. God might call you back around when that person is ready, but either, either way, spend your energy where the Lord is leading because that's where you're, you're most likely to see him produce fruit. Par and Barnabas, yeah. Paul and Barnabas got to see a lot of the fruit that God brought out of their efforts, and that's awesome, but it wasn't easy for them. Right? They got to see a lot of fruit, but that's because they worked really, really, really hard. In fact, almost everywhere they went, they made enemies. And even, even, you know, without having to deal with the, the slander and the, the mistreatment, the fruit that they saw cost them something, didn't it? It cost I mean, they poured a whole lot of time and energy into this ministry that God had called them to. Friends, recognize it will cost you something to water what God is growing. Even in the best of circumstances, when everything is going well, investing in people can still wear you out. And in less fruitful times, when people aren't responding well, it can really be discouraging. I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll pour a whole lot of emotional capital into someone and it feels like nothing changes. And it gets really easy for you to feel that your cup is running low. So be ready for it. If you're engaged in any sort of ministry, and every Christian should be, because we're all ministers, okay, then just prepare your mind for that feeling and remember the importance of refilling your cup so that you don't run dry. You know, after that long list of places in the previous verse, Luke tells us the apostles finally landed back at Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they went back to their home base. I think it was probably to recuperate a little bit, you know, in familiar territory so that they'd be able to head back into the mission field feeling refreshed. And friends, we need to be sure to retreat for rest from time to time. Now, on the one hand, we should be careful about this because rest shouldn't mean checking out from life at inappropriate times. Okay, that's not what we're talking about, okay? Like everything else, God created rest for a purpose. Someone once pointed out the word recreation is literally re-creation. It's having downtime for the purpose of being re-created. 
So why do we need recreation? So we're ready to get back to work. That's the purpose of rest. So that we can get back to work. Spiritually speaking, our rest isn't flopping down in a hammock for weeks on end. Okay, it is, it is a purposeful withdrawing from a position of stress, and that could be good stress or bad stress, in order to recover the necessary strength to re-engage. Now, I want, to, I want you to put a pin in that thought for just a minute and, and connect this with the next sub-point. When you retreat for rest, it is most effective when you take time with those who fill your cup. You know, God didn't design us to, to be individually fulfilled. He created us to connect with Him and to connect with one another. That's how we're made. That's how we're wired. And when Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch, they were returning to home base. I mean, Antioch was, was also the home of a, a strong, well-established church with many mature Christians that could minister to Paul and Barnabas as well as be ministered to by them. They're, they're probably feeling pretty drained. And let's draw an application from this before we get to the last thing. I think a lot of people, including Christians, misunderstand that Sunday morning worship is actually intended to be a time of rest. I want to say that again. Sunday morning worship is intended to be a time of rest. Some of you know that a little too well, saying that. But, but I mean for the Spirit, okay? We refer to this as a worship service to God, and it is, but rather than draining us, it's meant to recharge us. It's supposed to energize us. You know, the, the partaking of the Lord's Supper and praying together and singing to God and singing to one another about God and, and, and hearing the Word, these are all ways in which God miraculously, supernaturally fills our cup. I want to encourage everyone not to think of, of worship service as a, as a chore, you know, or, or some, just a duty or an obligation, but, but as a rest, which gives you a spiritual strength to be able to re-engage for another few days before you come here again and you get filled up again. I know it, it feels like a sacrifice sometimes to get out of bed on a morning when you arguably don't have to. But I think, it, I think the, the benefits of being at worship service together vastly outweigh all of the other, you know, issues with the struggling. And I think if you, if you look around, and, and I just want to invite you to look around. Look around the room a little bit. Take a second. It's okay. Half of you are sleeping anyway. I'm just kidding. Look around. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Look around the room. I mean, think about this. You'll probably realize there are a lot of people in this room who love you and who take joy in being the Lord's instrument to fill your cup. Amen? I look around, I see people that, that enjoy that. And on top of that, you know, you're here. You're here to see people whose cups need to be filled. And you take joy in filling their cup. It goes both ways. We're in this together. 
friends. You know, disciple making doesn't just happen out there in the world. It happens right here. Every Sunday that you're here, you are a part of a community that is making disciples of one another. Do you understand that? You're a part of the process right here, right now. I think that's pretty awesome. All right, last sub point. I think it's cool that we, we kind of come full circle in this text. We start with the apostles commending the believers to the Lord in whom they believed, and we end up with a verse that reminds us that the apostles were originally commended by the church at Antioch for this mission, which Luke refers to then as the work which they had fulfilled. And so every one of you, every week, is sent into a mission field full of messy, broken people just like you. And that includes this gathering right here. This is your home base. This is where you are commended unto the Lord to continue the mission. And I encourage you, friends, fulfill what you are commended to. Fulfill what you are commended to. Live in obedience to Jesus Christ by spreading the message of the gospel and by teaching those whom God draws to himself through that message. That that message, that good news is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to save sinners by dying on the cross in our place and he rose from the dead and he is the Savior of anyone who trusts in him. That is the good news. And if God opens the eyes of their hearts to believe, then our job, according to Jesus in Matthew 28, is to immerse them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that he commanded. I'm going to ask you to take just a moment and think about this. Think about what Jesus did. And if the Holy Spirit is leading you to take any of the steps that are on the slide behind me, please don't hesitate today. 